0: Episode 71 of CinePunks. This is a very special, and by special, I mean unique episode of CinePunks. As you know, if you're a regular listener to the show, I very rarely do this without Josh. It's really a me and Josh show. There was an episode a while ago where I interviewed one of the members of Code Orange... Uh, by myself, backstage This is a little awkward But me and Josh at least got to record an intro for that together Unfortunately, Josh is nowhere on this episode He's not here for the intro And he wasn't there when we did this However, I think the episode is still great And I was helped by uh, Long-term CinePunks, Evan Vallela And a host of Loud Fast Philly, Joseph Gervasi. Uh, This was just basically a unique opportunity. This episode, we talked to Grady Hendrix about his book, Paperbacks from Hell, as well as his work as an author. He also wrote, you may have read Horror Store, Horror Horror Store, uh, or my best friend's exorcism, both of which are great. Uh, I'm currently reading paperbacks from hell. I wish I had the opportunity to read it prior to this interview, but it had just come out. Evan, however, uh, had read it as well as uh, Joseph. So they have some good questions and the conversation goes really well. But the point is we had this opportunity and Josh couldn't be there. So we went ahead and did it. That's just what happens. I also wanted to apologize up front um, in this intro for the lateness of this episode. Uh, this interview occurred about a week ago, so that would have been the 8th. Is that right? Or is that the 7th? I think it was the 7th. That's right. Uh, Grady was in town for a performance. Uh, he does this awesome live show as part of Paperbacks from Hell, and so he did performance at and And um, we happened to be able to catch him earlier in the day because of the tightness of our schedule. We had to get to dinner uh, and then get Grady to his performance. This is also a a little bit of a shorter episode than we normally do. So um, I wanted to sort of preface with that. And we talked to Grady almost entirely about his writing, which is great. But this is a film podcast. So I, I thought it was worth mentioning that this is a little bit outside of our usual, uh, though we've had a few episodes where we didn't talk about movies as well. Um, there's actually a few things I forgot to say during the episode or, or I felt were worth mentioning in this intro. So let me get to those and then we can jump into this really good interview. I think it's a really good interview. I Hopefully you guys think so as well. Um, I forgot to thank LVAC, Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. They are our official sponsor. If you would like to be a sponsor for Cinepunks, hit us up at CinePunks at Gmail. Also, just email us because you want to talk to us. That's fine. CinePunks at Gmail for all your uh, CinePunks needs. But Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations are basically the premier screen printers of the Lehigh Valley. and, And I think... Of the larger world. Yeah, I said it. It's, you know, it's a small company, but they do great work. If you've ever gotten a Cinepunk shirt, uh, the new Harvest shirts that just got done, um, if you ordered merch, let's say, from Hearse or um, Gloss or who else did they do? Iron Chic. Um, They have a bunch of folks that they work with. Uh, Chances are you've seen their merch. They do good work. And they can print all kinds of things that you might want. You want koozies. You want underwear. You want fun trucker hats. They got you covered. So you know, they're our official sponsor. I should have said something. I didn't get to it. The other thing I didn't say, and I think it's important, as I said, this is a film podcast. And I mentioned that Grady Hendrix is this author, which he really is. But Grady Hendrix also founded the New York Asian Film Fest, and that never came up. Uh, part of the reason it didn't come up is that I'm bad at doing research. I listened to a podcast uh, interview with him, and I was like, oh, this is good. This has stuff. And I didn't finish the episode, and they didn't really get into the New York Asian Film Fest thing till later in the episode that I listened to. Uh, so it didn't really come up, and it, it really should have. I, I knew he had was connected to the New York Asian Film Festival because it came up in other conversations with him, but I didn't realize he was one of the founders and you know that's a big deal and as you know a film podcast we should really have said that and we didn't so i feel whatever it's fine uh another thing i wanted to mention at a certain point in the conversation we do our Whackin on track and joseph is talking about uh the vietnam series and he makes some strong comments about Communism, uh, which is fine. Joseph can say whatever he wants. That's that wasn't really my concern, per se. It was more that, like in the in the context of the episode. I just kept it moving. I didn't really push back at all, even though I probably could have, because I don't really agree with what he was saying. I wasn't offended, but I just was like, oh, okay, you know, it's it's something that we've talked about before. I mean, Joseph have some different opinions. I mean, we're kind of on the same team, but we definitely see things differently. So I thought it was worth mentioning it, only because when I was editing the episode, I realized like, oh, this seems like I'm on board because I just wanted to move on. But um. So that's kind of unfair to the audience. Uh, So I felt bad about that. But I didn't want to edit it out either because, you know, Joseph can say whatever he wants. I don't, you know, I'm not here to edit my friends or tell them that. I mean, if he had said something, I guess, you know, terrible, but that's not what happened. Uh, He just said something, you know, that I didn't quite agree with and I should have said something in the moment. But then I thought, I don't think... Actually, the Cinepunks audience is too concerned with what I think in that way, so I kind of wanted to just move on and not make it a big conversation or get into it. Um, but if you are interested in that sort of thing, you know, me and Joseph could easily do an episode of I don't. I guess that could be Cinepunks. It could be whatever, and just talk about politics. But though we do occasionally make political statements, it's not like the purpose of the show. So I didn't really want to like make that what we were doing. Anyways, so if that bums you out, sorry. If it doesn't bum you out, cool then. Great, didn't didn't bother you at all. I appreciate that. Uh, finally, one of the things I really wanted to mention, I I didn't, uh, I shouldn't say that. All the things I wanted to mention were important, but one of the things I wanted to mention that I think are is important as well is that um, we have shirts for Harvestness now, and you know. Justin went out of his way to get these shirts designed and printed and he's kind of put himself out there to kind of get the business name out there. So I just want to make sure that on Cinepunks and on some of the other shows, we, we promote that because I, I don't want Justin to just eat those shirts. So um, if you're interested in Harbiz's shirts, they're not quite up on the Cinepunks website yet. Uh, that's going to take a little bit of an effort, but you can always hit Justin up directly on Twitter or you can email business at i don't know what the email is uh hit up justin on twitter and then he can give you or uh seek out hard business any episode of hard business he puts the email in there and you can email him about shirts Uh, but they will be up on the cinepunk store if you want to do this over paypal officially with cinepunks um then they'll be up on the store soon so i think that's everything again Thanks so much to Grady Hendrix. He is not only a great writer and an entertaining performer, he was a joy to talk to. Just the nicest guy. And big thanks to Joseph and Evan. I, You know, I don't like flying solo, so having them there to support me was great. But, I, I you know, I do got to say... I miss Josh. I miss Josh during this episode. Uh, I always miss Josh when I'm doing stuff without him. That's kind of lame, I guess, but that's true. Um, It's just been a busy time for both of us, so we haven't gotten to hang out as much. Uh, I do know that Solarize has been playing some shows, so Uh, We didn't mention Solarize during the episode, but as one of the things that you should be doing and supporting and checking out, um, go ahead and check out Solarize if they play anywhere near you. I know they were just in Boston this weekend. So thanks a lot. Uh, Thanks for your support. Please subscribe, rate and review. Especially subscribe on iTunes. That really uh, gets our sort of name out there. And tell your friends about us. Or maybe order a t shirt. That'd be cool too. Whatever you want to do. Anyways, thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Don't talk. Just.
1: Black Sun, there is no hope, only mystery, wonder, and danger. Black Sun dispatches on the Cinepunks Podcast Network. Yeah, I guess. I'm Liam O'Donnell. I'm Josh Alvarez? No, you're not. Yeah, you're right. I'm not.
0: You're listening to a very special episode of Cinepunks. Unfortunately, we are not featuring the wonderful and magnanimous Joshua Alvarez. So we've gotten two people to replace him. One is Evan Villella. Say hi, Evan. Hey. The other... Host of Loud Fast Philly. I should say Evan also is our main graphic designer and a great guy in many ways. That's not true. I'm about to say that Joseph is of Exum Films. He is the host of our own Loud Fast Philly. He's just amazing. And so then I didn't want to make it seem like... So you're just giving me pity? Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't want to make it seem like you don't do anything. Like, you do stuff. Hmm. You work. You have a job. You keep a beautiful home. Yeah, thank you. I have to I say your
2: bathroom that. looks very nice. I saw zero pubes on the floor.
0: I cleaned it before you guys got here. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But then there's also Joseph, who's really amazing, too. So thank you guys both for being here.
2: You know, if you taped the two of us together, we probably still wouldn't be as big as Josh. <laughs>
0: We can I was. We can try later. And see I wasn't going to make that joke, but I knew if I like hinted in that direction that you would make that joke. So I mean, I'm th- glad that th- you, th- thank you, you, for you, setting you stepped up for it. Yes. He, did, he
1: stepped into he it. He did break my rib, giving me a hug. So, <laughs> did, you know. did,
0: did you? Okay, let's first introduce our guest. Joseph, would you like to introduce our guest? Oh, this is Grady Hendrix. Yeah, uh, hello. Grady is the author of a new book, paperbacks from hell, uh, of uh, my best friend's exorcism, of horror store. You got to say it uh, with the umlaut, though. Oh, how do you say with the umlaut? Harder store.
3: Is it it's store? Store.
0: Okay, I'm into that. I'm into that. Like a Swede. And then there's another book, right? Wasn't there another book?
3: There's some other stuff before that, but okay. who cares? You don't care about those Everything things. you said is a true fact.
0: Okay, that's good. That's. I wanted to make sure I nailed those true facts. Um, did you know that Josh... Broke Evans' rib. I don't think we ever talked about that.
1: I did hear. I did hear that mm. before. He was giving you a hug, an affectionate hug. And he he, he came wife? up behind me when I was setting up a table, and he like bear hugged me and lifted me up, and I got like off the floor, and then I felt it pop, mm. and I literally just yelled at him to let me go, and then I like doubled over.
0: Which I mean, I think his initial response was kind of like. Clearly this isn't a real thing.
1: He thought he was kid. And then I, I, I mean, I made it worse because I watched Floor Punch and I got like a spin kick to the side and that just like totally fucked it up.
0: So it could have been some other delinquents it's
1: problem. A, a little bit of both. I think. I have to apologize because a a little beep
2: came through on my watch. I get uh, news updates. And every time I get a news update, I look at my watch and think, oh, Donald Trump is dead. Donald Trump has been indicted. And every time it's like National Geographic has found a new bat in Borneo. It's never (laughs) Donald Trump is dead or been indicted. I just
0: wish they would stop looking for bats in Borneo. It's just a little too much for me. Leave bats alone. Every time there's
2: a new one, there's going to be a beep, which is going to ruin the podcast.
0: Well, that's fine. Hopefully one of them will be a nuclear war and then
2: it's coming. Or bite Donald Trump and he becomes... A vampire? Oh, Even worse. No, even worse. Yeah. Like, As he'll be undying. Can, can you imagine shit.
3: trying to get a vampire out of elected office? It's uh. impossible. <laughs> you just can't invite him anywhere. And he what would you do? What would you do? He's I like, mean, I'm a vampire. He to, he, you resurrect the founding fathers and then have them fight, but then they're still there? Yeah, he would be like, every law ever passed applies to humans only, and I'm a vampire, so there's no term terminus. Yeah. I'm not convinced He's you could even get point. a bat out of
0: the White House. Like, if he just turned into a normal bat, getting that out of the White House would be the problem. With his hair. imagine that bat with the hair well that might be easier though maybe the hair would wear weigh him down it seems light and fluffy to me (laughs) that's no (laughs) that's effervescent uh i guess i should say because this is usually what josh does and i always forget this is episode 71 Mm -hmm. congratulations Uh, by the way oh i know 71 episodes can you believe it you're like an old
1: man it's not that impressive i didn't think you'd make it to seven
0: i mean we barely did so that's that's fair grady thank you for being here I don't know why I bring this up because none of you can go, and it already happened. But uh, Grady's here for an event tonight at Philomoca. Um, if you are somewhere far away and you get an opportunity to uh, go see Grady, you should do that.
3: You will be going around the. I'm going to be going around like like a like a virus, like a Bornean bat. Uh, I'm going to Portland and San Diego and L.A. and Tulsa. Springfield, Missouri, Uh, maybe even Detroit, New Jersey. Like, I'm everywhere. How how does this work? I mean, do you... you, Is this on you to get there and uh, no no, no. You know. this it will sometimes it is yeah. like uh but but my books are selling okay enough that my publisher helps now mm-hmm. so they like they're this time out they're picking up the bill is this
0: quirk are you on? Quirk. quirk yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Um, hype.
3: and then london if anyone in london listens to this podcast i'll be there mm-hmm. i'm uh, sure
0: we got like a person in london up it's so probably long.
3: guy and
2: smith out in his remote, like, <laughs> country manner. Yeah, I wonder if he knows about the book and how he's
3: been additionally immortalized in the book. Uh, Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Some people like it and some don't. Like, I've, I've heard that there are a couple of authors who it leaves them very cold and irritated and other authors who are really excited to be in it. Do so. you, I mean, can you elaborate on that, or do you... Well, I don't I don't know who's who, you right, know, but, okay. like, like I know some people are psyched. Someone's like, oh, Tom Monteleone was really happy to be in the book, blah, blah, blah. And then someone else was like, you know, author so-and-so, they they think you didn't read their book nicely. Hmm. And, and that's fine. You know, hey, not everything's for everyone, you know? That's why they make chocolate and vanilla ice okay. cream. Oh, that's fair.
0: That's fair. Yeah. Was that ending... Ex- well, we'll get into this in a second. Yeah,
2: I felt like you wanted to do the introduction. Yeah, no, that's no, that's fine. Right. No,
0: that's fine. Um, Well... Um. Now I'm just totally all off balance Are
2: you whacking and on track? Yeah, or do let's, you have let's other do that
1: Hopefully not whacking though
0: No, we're only on track You're no Harvey Weinstein So uh, every episode we do a little just uh, uh, feature A uh, copyrighted feature of this podcast
2: Did you mail, did you write it down and mail it to yourself? To I did
0: actually, that's crazy I put it on a postcard, that was a very nice mm. postcard Does that not count? Does the postcard not count? Mm, God damn it I don't know uh, it's called Whacking on Track. I'm not going to do the thing. Me and Josh do a thing where I'm not going to do it because I wouldn't and, feel right doing it. No, okay. Josh isn't here, so we're not going to do the thing. But what? It's Whacking on Track. And as the guest, you get to choose whether you want to go first or you want to go last. I want to go last. I appreciate that. Which one of you wants to go first?
2: I'll, I'll happily go first. Do it. All right. Uh, well, on track, I've been watching the Vietnam documentary uh, yes. that Ken Burns Lindovic. I watched. In its entirety now, so that's ten
3: episodes at eighteen. No hours. spoilers, please. It ends real bad. I assume <laughs> and also I, it begins real bad. <laughs> I assume it ends with John Rambo coming back to America. Yes, if, if there is that little
1: epilogue. That, hey, they, that, they drew first blood, not, not him. him.
3: It wasn't him. the The cumulative
2: effect of watching this over so many days is that I I would just feel the weight of my heart sink through my sure. chest cavity and into the couch. I mean, it, the, it's it's a brilliant piece of work. I found it to be utterly mesmerizing, but you're just enveloped in a sense of horror from the beginning, and that's knowing that there's still an additional 10 years of
3: history. There's no, like, absorb. bright,
0: there's no, like, hopeful, like, starting point where it's like, this seemed like a good idea at first, like, no, it, it from never, day one, it's, no. This I funny.
2: mean, I think that some people's intentions were noble. I don't think that they were necessarily, Well, they weren't necessarily well executed, and I think that some people entered it entered into the war for various reasons, for noble reasons. I mean, there's, there's nothing commendable about communism. There's no reason to elevate that as something that is okay. I mean, the communists were uh, horrible. It's the, the flip side of fascism. It's the same coin. Um, so the thought of, of repelling or defeating communists, in theory, is not a bad idea. But in practice, when it doesn't work and it leads to 58,000 American dead and you know, millions of uh, Vietnamese dead is a tremendous debacle, especially knowing that many of the people who were involved in this process knew that this was not something that was going to work out and continue to send people over. Uh, and I grew up under the shadow of the Vietnam War. My father was a combat veteran. He was very proud of his service. But all the people that were around us were veterans. And I always felt the, the kind of the weight of the, of the war through, through my life. So seeing that was, uh, it was very impactful. I just highly recommend it.
3: That's intense. Uh, thanks I, for
1: bringing the tone down.
0: I know. I feel like. I feel like. What's the next step here? Like, uh, should I ask you probing questions about that? Or
1: I mean, I was going to make a joke about how I felt the same way about Ken Burns baseball, but it just didn't seem right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I I remember obsessively when I was younger watching the Ken, the Civil War one that came out. Yeah, that's a good one. And like being super star. I think I taped them all. Like I had the VHS. Like you know, rips of it or whatever, but um, everything he does is like, I don't know, it's, it's all very much serious with a lot of gravitas, like there, there's even like, I mean, I guess the baseball one was probably pretty light,
1: but. I mean, I don't even like baseball and I enjoyed it. That's how good he is. There's just something about Ken Burns
0: that just makes every subject like very engaging.
1: I think this is especially impactful since we
2: still live with the reverberations of the war, and there's a lot of footage that was shot, uh, so it's not having to resort to a sepia-tone photograph that kind of you know slowly zooms into it while someone speaks. The participants are largely alive. There's a tremendous amount of footage, so there's a lot to look at. There's a lot of rock music that you know engages the, the viewer.
0: I feel like you might have alienated all our communist list listeners though.
2: Uh I would be more than happy to alienate them. There is nothing commendable about their beliefs which have worked oh, in no part of the world ever and have only led to uh, genocide and oppression.
0: We're going to lose all those communist
3: <laughs> dollars. Shout out to our North Korean listeners. I mean you just lost every chance of getting into the Chinese market. I know.
0: Ugh. All right. Uh do you have another on track? Or whack for that matter?
2: Uh there's been some nasty flies around here in the kitchen, but I think that Evan's done a remarkable job of killing them. Before before you got here, Grady, there was at least about 50 flies around, but I think you've
1: managed to squish it's 49. Like, it's like uh, Amnival Horror.
3: Can I say again, you keep a lovely home. This Thank is very you. nice. I appreciate that. I try.
1: I think you're just being nice, but that's okay.
0: <laughs> Evan, do you have any whacking on track?
1: Uh, I mean, I work three jobs, so I don't do anything outside sure, of it. Like, sure. I don't. I don't want to go to shows because I'm at them like four times a week. Right. I saw Cold World last weekend. Hence the shirt. Hence the shirt. The greatest shirt I own. It's and it so was, ridiculous. It was great. It was like going to a show like 10 years ago.
0: Sure. And this was in New York? It was in New York. played
1: Blade, uh, Crime Watch. Was that at Sunnyvale? Yeah. yeah. Sure.
3: Which is cool. What's your job?
1: Uh, I work for uh, a credit bureau. I work for. TransUnion. Okay. But then I also do uh, Front House for Union Transfer, which is another venue. Got it. Okay. Close to Filmoka and then another venue at uh, Underground Arts. So I do like, I work shows every week.
3: Could I ask a Philly venue question? Sure. A, does the bank still exist? The bank? No, it doesn't. No. no. Yeah, it's been, um, did uh, si- you used to come down? Or? Well, no, my sister used to work there and her boyfriend was one of the bouncers. And so I'd come up here when I was like 14 and 13 years old and they lived in this church in fishtown and um and this was like the eight late 80s mm-hmm. and so i'd always hang out with them at the bank and like i'd be this like 13 year old kid in the bank there till like four in the morning or whatever and it would be the goth or industrial yeah uh, yeah and I, I, what they did there. and I remember at the end of the night the bouncers would all hang out and have a drink and they'd, they'd let me have a beer and they'd all put their weapons on the bar <laughs> And it was this amazing assemblage of like stuff that you could see a bouncer might use, like those extenda sticks yeah. you hit people with, and mace, and, and like brass knuckles. Then stuff like knives, guns, <laughs> like just like the most ridiculous stuff. It was kind of great.
2: <laughs> how, how old are you? Uh, Forty-four. Okay, yeah. So then you would have been around the same age as yeah. me then.
0: I like your excitement about that. That's <laughs> it was exciting. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not mad at that. Uh, okay, so the Cold War show was sick Cold War
1: show was good Concealed uh, Blade was
0: good Because that was the yeah, band I was most excited to see
1: I, I, Not that I went They broke a lot of shit and then Oh yeah, okay and It was good I liked that Yeah uh, yeah. I mean, Julia's going to be here next week I'm excited about that <laughs> Sure <laughs> That's sure. his mother That's yeah. my mother Yeah, My girlfriend <laughs> I'm really excited to see her Sure And yeah, that's. Uh, I've been reading Helter Skelter I'm Like nonstop. I saw your copy, yeah. Yeah, is it good? Yeah, it's making me feel uh, feel things well, I, what I, I what sort of things goes, do you feel? Eh, like I'm a saying. warm,
3: fuzzy sensation. Yeah. Future I mean, career?
1: Dude had some ideas. That's all I'm gonna say.
3: <laughs> you know he gets caught, right? <laughs> like I, I, I think if you're reading it, like
1: reading, watching ET, you know it's like
3: get, he's gonna get away. He's gonna get
1: away. <laughs> I, I went on a work trip recently, and that was like I had just picked that book up, and I'd never read it fully. I like I'd flip through it, and I brought that with me to read on the plane, and. I pretty much had it with me every time I... Because we were in a resort in Wisconsin. I didn't go anywhere else outside of that resort. So I just had it with me in between the meetings. I would just read it. And one of my bosses came up to me and was like, Why are you reading that? I, was just, like, I didn't have an answer for him. I was like, "I, I don't know. It seems like a good thing to do. And he was just like okay and then just kind of like walked away and then people would like give me weird looks from across the room and not really speak to me hey it's a good way not to have to communicate with yeah. anyone else I you know you know the only right answer to that
3: question would be oh because i'm gonna kill you all
1: <laughs> I, I just think he had a lot to say and i'm uh i'm interested in it
0: i just feel like this is this is the beginning of the story of how evan ended up in hr how evan ended up on unemployment. <laughs>
1: I've been working there for three years and they haven't fired me yet, so I don't think that's going to do it. To be honest. <laughs> yeah, but when you come in and kill everyone
2: at some point, then they're going to tr- trace it back to that book. They—you're going to get signed. HR is going to give you a
0: warning, a
1: that's serious fair. warning. When you as kill long everyone. as try, try the ebook just, next you know, time,
0: you know, no one sees the cover. That's true. You need a Kindle.
1: Well, I needed. I like when I fly. I like to have a book that makes people not want to talk to me, and that was the one that I chose. So, and I really appreciate the purity of you're doing the old school mass market paperback. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. When I bought that, my roommate, who isn't here, bought one. I bought one, and I guess she sold one earlier in the day, and the woman was just like... Three copies of Helter Skelter in one day. Something's in the air. And she just looks at it she's like, What does it mean? And i was like, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I'd like to recommend Mein Kampf for you
2: if you oh, ever I've, want to, you know, seriously uh,
1: alienate people. I had to read that for school, actually.
0: I feel like at this point you could also recommend The Art of the Deal. That might also help. No,
1: me. I don't. I'm not interested. I'd rather read Mein Kampf again. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right. Uh, any Anything else? That's pretty much it. All right. I got to work a Gogol Bordello show tonight and tomorrow. I'm not excited that about that. That sounds whack. Yeah, it's going to, it's very whack. Okay, cool.
0: Uh, On track, I went last night to the Mahoning drive-in to Mm -hmm. the double feature of Monster Squad and Night of the Creeps. Uh, Was that an
2: Exhumed film's one or or one of theirs or someone else?
0: It was one of theirs. I'm sure they probably got the prints from Harry, though. That's my... Whenever they have prints that are good prints, I assume that's where they got them. But I don't know. Uh, But it was theirs. I mean, usually when it's an Exhumed thing at the Mahoning... They don't uh, reshow stuff. Like, it tends to be a variety of things. You know, like, each night will be different. When they book their own thing, they tend to do both nights the same just to, like, I don't know, get people to come multiple nights. I don't know, whatever. Um, But it was cool. Uh, I will say the one whack element is just, as I've said before, uh, I'm a father of a very young child, which means I don't get that much sleep. So there was a point at which I fell asleep during Night of the Creeps. That's one of my favorite movies. So that really bummed me out when I and it's falling asleep was actually very pleasant. Waking up and realizing that I had missed some of my favorite parts, I'm like, nah. And it's not, you know, I can't be like, roll it back. Wait, I missed the, you know. So the DVD awaits thee at home. Yeah, that's true. Well, actually I need to buy that. But anyway, so that was great. And I just like the atmosphere and just the whole thing of being at the Mahoning. And I was there with uh my business co-host, Justin Lore. So that was a lot of fun um and chris reject was there which is you know whatever not fuck, a lot of fun fuck chris reject but um no i'm kidding i love you chris uh so that was great um as far as um newer films i went also with uh Harvest's co-host justin lore we went and saw mother and i can't decide if that is whack or on track that
2: grady looks like he's dying over there did I you can, see it i kind of want to yes.
3: see it what did you think? I hated it with a passion, and I hate to
0: say that. Um, I don't think you should hate to say it. I am, I am very unsure what I think about it, so I, I welcome your critique of the film.
3: My thought is that it is this, the, the live action adaptation of the giving tree that no one in the world asked for. <laughs> that's fair. And I can't decide what about it bugs me more. Is it the fact that Javier Bardem is called the poet and people actually refer to him as the poet throughout as if that's a name? Is it the long opening cam shot that follows Jennifer Lawrence around until she's framed up in a white dress against a bright door so you can see her boobs? Is it uh, the moment where Javier Bardem rapes her and then halfway through she starts enjoying it and then has an orgasm and then wakes up the next morning and goes, I'm pregnant. How do you know? A woman knows. Or was it the fact that here's these white people living in this, like, completely decorated, beautiful house, and the house is gorgeous, and it gets invaded by all these sort of, like, non-white people who ruin all their shit? Like, I didn't know what part of it irritated me more. I appreciate Darren Aronofsky does this stuff and has a platform to do this stuff. That's great. But, like, boy, man, I thought it was... For a movie that was trying to, I thought, be so woke and like, you know, really aware of the issues that confront us in the world. It seems so unaware of its own like biases and problems. That's my rant. Huh. I appreciate
0: that. I think I was unsure how much of it I was supposed to take as representative of reality. I mean, he is being, in my mind, curmudgeonly as to, of course, if you make a movie like Mother, people are going to ask you. So uh, what's this fucking movie about? Like, that's a thing. And he just keeps being like, oh, whatever. Like, he doesn't want to acknowledge the uh, the giant gorilla in the room or however you want to imagine that. Like, that this movie is actually super confusing. It's maybe biblical. It's maybe about creativity in general. It's maybe... Uh, an apology in advance to his girlfriend Jennifer Lawrence for how he's eventually going to treat her. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I can't tell what the movie... I mean, it's, it is it is normally, a, for me, a sign of quality when I watch a movie, and I am so confused because it gives me reason to delve in and really think about it. But for this film, it, uh, it feels like there's a lot I appreciate, but I'm not sure it's worth it to me to spend time, quote-unquote, figuring it out. Um, which is not really what I mean. What I mean is uh, thinking about what's going on. I just feel like it feels very thrown together, and it feels very much like playing with these larger ideas without really thinking about what they mean. Just sort of this is interesting and this and that. And now we've got this movie, and if you don't get it, you just don't get it. And uh, it really it kind of run me the wrong way. On the other hand, I didn't I didn't quite hate it. So I kind of felt kind of like, uh, maybe if I watched it again, I would form a stronger opinion one way or the other. But I don't want to watch it again. So I think I'm just kind of like, oh, mother, that happened. It exists.
3: Well, I also think Darren Aronofsky is really interesting because... I feel like he's going to wind up having like Ken Russell's career where it's going to be a big body of work and some of it's a hit and some of it's a bomb and some of it's all over the place and some of it's really conservative and reactionary and some of it's really like over the top liberal and we're in the middle of it. We don't have the perspective on looking back on it and being like, oh, well, that was Ken Russell's weird movie. Eh, You know, eh." you know, but I like, you know what I mean? And so it's like in the middle of it, it's hard to to pass judgment, like, you know. Keep making movies and get back to us when you're 70, Darren. <laughs> I mean, I guess them will judge you.
0: I think that's what it kind of boils down to a little bit for me too. Is there's some part of me that's kind of like, well, this crazy fucking thing opened in multiple theaters, so that's kind of cool. Like at least it went out there. It's just there's some part of me that kind of thinks maybe those resources should have gone to a different script, different film. I don't know. Anyways, uh, so I uh, on track, Mahoning Drive-in, whack. Maybe mother. Maybe it's whack.
1: I haven't decided. Okay. Wasn't was Ed Harris in that? Yeah. I, how was he? <clears throat> He's great.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and Michelle Pfeiffer, I thought was terrific. I'm
0: going to straight up say I don't think any of the performances were necessarily bad. I will say uh, Javier Bardem doesn't really do much. He's mm. just sort of there. There's nothing really written for him to do other than to be like. It, I mean, it's it, it. It feels like all of his. If if there was any directions for him in the script, it was like condescension be more condescending for this part. Make sure you're condescending. Like that's all he does. The whole movie is be like, Oh, whatever. You wouldn't understand. Like that's his whole character. Whereas I feel like actually Jennifer Lawrence performance wise is great. I think her character maybe is a problem, but her portrayal of that character is awesome. Like I think she's really good in it, but that doesn't, I mean, everyone in this movie could kill it. And if someone's like, this is my least favorite movie of all time, I'd be like, okay, that's fair. You know, it's, I don't, I don't have any need to defend it. So, anyways hey Grady
3: no whack all on track Yes. I just I just uh, well after bagging on mother but I just uh, read I was reading a paperback I just found early 90s a uh, carnivore by Lee Clark which it's not a particularly good book but it's about a uh, expedition to the Arctic and um, it's They think, the the biologists and the EPA people on it think it's to do discovery, but really it's to find a new place to dump our radioactive waste. And then they discover an unhatched Tyrannosaurus Rex egg, and um, the Russian, who for some reason is in charge because it's like an international co-thing, he puts it next to the radioactive waste to make it hatch, and then it makes the dinosaur grow faster to put the radioactive waste on it. And then, though, they didn't think it through, right? Because they thought, we're going to return to the world with this full-grown T-Rex, and that's going to really impress everyone. Didn't think it through. Now they're in the Arctic with a radioactive 40-foot-tall T-Rex. Yeah. Nothing but trouble. (laughs) Man, that thing. And it's great because every time it bites people, Lee Clark writes these descriptions of all the meat that's caught between its teeth from the previous time. And so you just want to give it a good floss, like, you know? (laughs) So the cold doesn't affect it adversely, being presumably a cold-blooded creature? Radioactive waste. Oh, so that kind yeah, of... Okay. That, they, <laughs> okay, they, yeah, they, 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 there's right, like yeah. a two-sentence hand wave yeah. on that. They're like, well, clearly it's mutated from the radioactive waste. Yeah, yeah. And then go over there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um and also, I hate to sound like a, a ripoff, but uh, I was going to say Vietnam, the Ken Burns Oh, series. you've been watching yeah, it. Yeah, I dislike Ken Burns stuff in general. I just find it very, I don't know, it doesn't do it for me. Um, but this is really great. It's really great. Uh, Peter Coyote's soothing narration yeah, is yeah. so good. I'm only on episode four, and like you, you're like, Jesus Christ, there's eight more of these. How much yeah. more fucked up does this get? Yeah. In um, two- Episode eight
2: is Perhaps oh. for me it was was the worst because some of the personal testimonies were, were so so difficult to. Well, absorb. that's the
3: two things I love about it. Is one, I'm learning how to pronounce Vietnamese names. Really, mm. like like I didn't know D is a Z, you know ZM. Okay, cool. Yeah. And Nguyen, I never knew how to pronounce that, and now I'm learning. It's good. You see it on the screen. You hear people say way way. Yeah, Should exactly. It, yeah. Um, and uh, the other thing is, uh, that story they tell in the first episode where it's an American vet. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I didn't really talk about Vietnam. My wife and I were friends with this other couple, and we were friends for 12 years before our wives were talking one day and realized we'd both been in Vietnam together. Mm-hmm. And you're like, Jesus Christ. It's like you're a really good friend. You know you were both in the military, and you went 12 years without ever – yeah. that's messed up. Yeah. I mean – Um, And then the last thing is I just went to see the new Wong Jing, Donnie Yen, Andy Lau movie, Chasing the Dragon. Oh, how was that? uh, Really terrible. Um, (laughs) But uh, it's, you know, because it's made for the mainland market, too. And so it's about... It's set in the 70s and Donnie Yen's Crippled Co, uh, who's like uh, a drug dealer in the 70s who worked with Lee Rock, who's an infamous, famous, real-life corrupt cop from back then, who Andy Lau played in a two-movie series in the early 90s. And Andy Lau plays Lee Rock again. But a a lot of CGI, a lot of green screen. It didn't quite... The action's great, but it sort of ends once they turn Donnie Yen into fulfilling his moniker, Crippled Co. Uh, And so, like... um, So it's sort of like there's not a lot there, but I have to say great, great cameo performance, or I guess co-starring performance by, has anyone here seen Red to Kill? Yeah, 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 the the Hong Kong movie about the necrophiliac serial rapist stalking the stool for developmentally disabled adults from the early 90s. Ben Ng, who plays the necrophiliac serial rapist, plays one of the crime bosses in this, and he's fantastic. And and he's like in his 50s now, and he looks great. And there's a moment when he makes a a junkie drink a big foaming hot glass of piss. And I'm like, you know... (laughs) I'm so glad that's Ben Ing's moment shine.
0: <laughs> I like that you took what could have easily been a whack and turned it into an on track. I like very much appreciate that move. You gotta find the gold, you know. No, totally that makes <laughs> sense. Uh, so you don't think people should see that?
3: No, it wasn't great, but you know, I'm glad I saw it. It had its moments i appreciate it. specifically the piss moment yeah, the piss moment and and a couple of action scenes are a lot of fun because they do them they really feel like real people fighting but they're still choreographed so people fall down they like punch and hit themselves by accident you know what i mean it's like it's kind of great but it's like there's two scenes like that in the first 40 minutes and it's a two hour and 15 minute movie so wow all right yeah yeah well i a- mean andy lyle still looks good though creamy creamy skin <laughs>
0: I appreciate that. I appreciate
3: that. So um, I want to talk a
0: little bit with you. I actually, so um, I, in preparation of this, I actually listened to your interview on Shockwaves. Oh, yeah, yeah, That was a while ago. I think, how long ago was that? I don't know. I think May? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. okay. It was a little bit ago. Um, but I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about um, how you got into writing fiction, and specifically um, the first time I remember... I think you were at I think you were at a, a Horathon when Horror Store was coming out and you were promoting it. That was yeah. when I first heard of you. Was people being like, "Oh, this you wrote Horror Store," and I was like, "That sounds really interesting." Um, and and you started me going from there. And then I know we want to spend some time obviously talking about the new book, but I kind of want to just start there about like how did you get into this this thing, because I know from that you originally were in journalism, right?
3: Yeah, and actually it's funny you say that exhumed fest, because was that the exhumed fest where I broke a styrofoam cooler of yes. beer? Yes, so, I remember that, and beer. I was like, what the hell? And, oh, I felt like such a dick, and the thing that's interesting is I broke that all over the dudes in front of me who this guy doogie horner who comes to those all the time oh, yeah doogie. And doogie is now the art director at quirk and actually did the uh, art the layouts everything on paperbacks from hell uh, all comes
0: around full circle is he still doing stand-up comedy is that still a thing
3: yeah it is i don't know if he's doing as much he's doing books mostly but I, and he okay. had a kid so i think that limits his Sure, his sure, sure, you know. sure, sure. Um, but yeah i started out in journalism if you can call it that i mean i was a freelance writer and i wrote for a variety and a bunch of papers but sure. it's you think of journalism as like war journalism and like when you're sitting in a screening room watching watching like you know some terrible movie like it doesn't you don't feel like a journalist Uh, but yeah I did that for a long time and then in 2008 all those jobs just died I mean it was bad like freelancers were roaming the streets like, you know, writing for a byline. And, sure. And um, the, the, the strong ate the weak. And so I decided to do something even stupider, and I decided to double down on writing fiction. And I went to Clarion, which is a fantasy and science fiction writing workshop. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. How was, what was that like? It was amazing. It really was. And I was really nervous about going because I grew up pre-Harry Potter. And so, like, kids now are so comfortable with, like, liking Lord of the Rings or, like, Harry Potter – like like having read about a boy wizard is something that everyone shares it's not something that alienates you anymore and so i've always been ashamed like i of of liking this kind of stuff and and horror was the only thing that was sort of socially acceptable to like um and so going to clarion was great cuz it was all these people who were like they did this too and felt no shame about it and and didn't have any doubts. And it was great. It was like six weeks and you live out in San Diego and it's real boot camp. There's like 14 of you, I think 15 or 19. I don't know. Some teen number. Um, And it was great. It was fantastic. And like, uh, and and I came out of that and um, just started writing and, you know, selling stories and, and was really, really Freaking broke for a long time and, and still am to some extent, but, um, yeah. And then, and then, um, I, I sold horror store to quirk and just sort of things progressed from there.
0: How is the response to horror store? I mean, it's kind of a unique story, even within the realm of, of horror writing, Um, what has that sort of been like for you?
3: Oh, it's been great because you've got Ikea, which is like everyone knows Ikea. And the thing that blows my mind about Ikea, when I wrote that book, there were literally only 39 Ikeas in the United States. And that's like 2014. But everyone knows what Ikea is. Like there's 50-something Ikeas in Germany. There's 39 in the US. We're bigger than Germany. But everyone knows. Ikea owns this chunk of our mental real estate. Right? Uh, It's super popular in China, Thailand, Korea. And so what to me was the rude awakening is it did really well and like sold all these foreign territories and all this. And then my best friend's exorcism came out. It did well. And it's really doing better now with the the paperback and that great cover that uh, Doogie did. But without that bigger pop culture tie in of having the Ikea name, you know, I'm like, why are my sales like a quarter of horror store? You know, it's because people know Ikea. You know what I mean? That's interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's really it it's really hard out there for stuff that's original i'm not saying it's superior in any way but like most writers at the level i'm at who are like new york times best selling author they're a new york times best selling author because they did like a star wars tie in book or something you know what i mean like I'd love to do a Star Wars tie-in. But I mean that'd sure, be amazing. Yeah. Um but it's just like like you to move those numbers with books, you have to be tied into some huge piece of of IP like IKEA or Star Wars or the Harry Potter universe or something because it's really books just don't sell. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's weird. Doing paperbacks from hell has been weird to see, like, all these sort of people who were second-tier writers back then, like, you know, Dean Coos, well, Dean Coos was first, I guess, but, like, Peter Straub and, like, John Saul, who were big names, but they weren't Stephen King, they weren't Anne Rice, you know, they made these enormously amazing livings writing this stuff, and that doesn't happen anymore, there's not that mid-list i've heard it mentioned
2: that uh horror stories in development for a tv series is it in a development hell or
3: is it i mean is it moving along in yeah some way? it seems to be moving along i it comes up for renewal again on the option it keeps moving i mean they didn't like just just put it on ice but and they did i've read some of the scripts they wrote for it, and they they licked the problem of how to make it a series i thought pretty cleverly but you know it's like People are really nervous about committing to TV these days, you know. And it's like there's always interest from sort of like platforms like YouTube that's doing dramas and stuff. But Mm. the people who have it are like they're they're shooting higher than that, so Mm. it's it's still going around. It comes. We got to review the option in like October. Oh, we are in October. Yeah. So yeah. So I don't know. And also, I'm the writer. Like no one cares about me. Like (laughs) you, will
2: you have an involvement in a finished product in any capacity? No. And so you just
3: sell off and. Yeah, I mean, they keep me posted and stuff, and I have some moral authority. Like, I can say, I really think this is a terrible idea. And they'll listen to me, maybe, um, depending on how many times I do that. But, like, if we all had a meeting, me and all the people working on this, I'd be the guy. They'd be like, oh, can you go get some coffee? You know, like, like, bring me back a donut.
2: So you won't be executive producing? No, I'll be, my name will be on as an executive producer.
3: Yeah, but executive producer credits are like, you know, that's what you give people who you just want to have go away, usually. Like me. (laughs)
0: I like that you own that, that you just want to have go away. So, but this is your first, so switching a little gears a little bit to Paperbacks from Health, is this your first nonfiction book?
3: Absolutely. Uh,
0: Talk a little bit about where this came from because it's kind of a unique way of talking about horror, of sort of in a way like uh, making a sort of uh, history or a response to that. It it strikes me as interesting. as far as the sort of study that it is, you know, I don't know if there's another book like this, let alone on this topic,
3: which blows my mind. I would have thought someone would have done this by now. And I didn't realize no one had done it until I was like in the middle of writing it and looking for sources and stuff. And I'm like, God damn it. Why doesn't someone write this book so I can rip it off? (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, I basically, you know, I was a film guy first and in film, there's a tradition of you go out, you find weird stuff and you show it to other people. And I didn't see that with books so much, you know, on, on a big scale. And so I started just wandering around and grabbing stuff and reading it at random. And um, I, I, I was writing about it for tour. And my editor at Quirk, Jason Rakulik, really liked the columns. And he's like, look, no one here is going to go for it. Like, a sales and marketing are never going to say yes. But would you be interested if I pitched a book like this? And I was like, yeah, sure. And, you know, he convinced them to do the book. And so um, so then I brought Will Erickson on board, who does the Too Much Horror Fiction blog, and is, is sort of my co-author slash researcher on this. Um, he's been doing this for ages. This is sort of his turf I'm encroaching on. Um, and Basically, where Will was super valuable is um, we had all these phone conversations, because how do you structure something like this? Like, you know, what do you do? And we realized that there were this started with the other and Rosemary's Baby and the Exorcist, you know, early on. And then there'd be these waves as some big book broke there would be a bunch of imitators afterwards. So like, you know, Burnt Offerings, but really the Amityville Horror spawned all these haunted house books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jaws and the Rats came out in the same year, spawned all the Animal Attack books, you know? And then when you get to the 80s, it was all about blockbuster names like V.C. Andrews and, and, and King and Anne Rice and all that. So... Uh, So that sort of structure came in, and then we were like, okay, well, this all makes sense, right? It's like, and when you start digging down into stuff like, okay, 74 was the rats and jaws. That was also the year that Richard Adams' uh, Watership Down came out in the U.S. and became a big, big bestseller, actually outsold Jaws. Um, That was the same year that the first animal rights groups ever in like modern history were arrested for freeing all the like bunny rabbits on some animal testing lab in England. It was the year... Just a couple of years after the EPA was formed, the clean air, like there was this huge sudden awareness that like, you know, we had to protect nature. Um, so that stuff just all came together, you know, and then serial killers fucked it all up for everyone. <sighs> sure,
0: exactly. <laughs> Fuck those guys. Ah, oh, God damn it. Um, What was the research process like for this? Because I don't I I guess one of. Other than your own experience, like clearly you're drawing to some extent from you've read these, you know, right. these books are part of your life. But I'm assuming you're doing more research than just like, let's go to my bookshelf and see what's there. Like you are getting into this stuff. How, how is it? even finding that information.
3: It was weird, and it came in, in parts. Like, I was halfway through reading the book before someone like Facebook, and he was like, what would you think when you read The Black Exorcist? And I was like, there's the a Black Exorcist? I was like, you know what I mean? And then, I, of course, I found it and, and read it. And, uh, you know, and I missed, of course, The Gay Exorcist, which was the oh, wow. gay, hardcore, paperback version of The Exorcist. Is it called The Gay Exorcist? It's called The Gay Exorcist. Right. Yeah, Maitland McDonough uh, texted phenomenal. me about it. Yeah, And um, so... I feel stupid you know I miss so much stuff but like people will tell you stuff and you'll follow you'll just go down a rabbit hole I mean I would spend days on ABE books just like doing different searches and stuff and seeing what came up and and you start to recognize authors and publishers and all that and it was also reading a ton of old newspapers like you know hometown boy Michael McDowell writes has a book coming out in a Hollywood deal and so you'd find out who Michael McDowell is sure sure Um, and then there were books about book publishing that are all out of print Now, but like you know, Bantam in the mid seventies published this book called One Hundred Years of Bantam, and it's like you know, it's basically a paperback that's all about how great Bantam is. But they like interview their art directors. There's a whole chapter on the people who write the blurbs on the front of their paperbacks. Like it's really great stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, honestly, it's a real magpie approach. I'm really hoping that people read this and then use it as a starting place to do more organized, better. Focused research on the like corners I missed and the places I missed because I missed a ton. There's I, no Nazis in I think this. it's certainly having effect uh, almost immediately, because I've
2: looked up some of the books that you wrote about that I wasn't familiar with, and I've noticed that the prices on these things, which were a penny, yeah. you know, have skyrocketed which I to hate. $14, 15 and then some of them for hundreds if they
3: think that nobody else is selling the thing. I know They're also listed as bestseller on Amazon. Uh, oh, yeah. Number one bestseller in 20th century literary criticism. Yes, I am so excited. There's some dude who is writing on his Virginia Woolf monologue for like 20 years, and it came out, and he's like, I'm not Number three, number two. What the? Who the hell is this asshole? Like, um, so yeah, I hope I crush someone's dreams.
2: Have you managed to contact uh, any of the the writers that you write about? I assume that oh, tons. Many of them are dead, but you've spoken to some of the ones that are still.
3: Oh yeah, living. a lot of and a lot of the artists too. Um, And, you know, and these guys are great, you know, like, and they're really fascinating. Like Michael Blumline, who did a lot of the Abyss books that came towards the end. He was great. And he's a, he's an MD and like he wrote the brains of rats, brains of rats and X, Y. And, um, he, and so, uh, we were talking and he was really honest and he was saying, you know, when X, Y came out, which is this really weird gender bender book. That's kind of amazing and horrific. Um, and he writes in this very cold Cronenbergian language. Um, he said you know, it was marketed as a horror paperback because that's sort of what the market wanted then. And he's like, it never occurred to me that it was horror. And he's like, and actually the cover of that book and having it labeled horror, he's like, it was so upsetting to me. It upset my mother. My sister was really, he's like, I didn't write for like two more years. For two years after that, I couldn't write anything. He's like, and, and, and you know, and that's kind of, you know, I feel like everyone's building their brand these days. And so it's really nice to have someone be honest, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and the artists were great too. I mean, they were phenomenal. And it's like, Their work is so forgotten. These were just paperback covers, you know, but they were these giant oil paintings that took them weeks to do. So,
2: yeah, I've seen really amazing work in old paperbacks that painted covers, and it, it, you know, the Photoshop covers of today are just nothing compared to the 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 artistry that went into some of these things
3: for such minor books with small print runs that are just. As you say, they're just gone. They don't. They barely exist anymore. Yeah, and it's like Zebra, which is really one of the lowest of the low publishers. Like they were down, Pinnacle, Leisure, and Zebra were sort of bottom of the barrel. But Zebra knew their books were like, you know, not going to sell. They didn't have big names and they weren't really good. So they spent money on really great cover artists like William Teeson, who's like, he did a ton of Zebra covers. And William Teeson is like, one of the great unknown American illustrators. Like he just never got the credit that was due to him. But he did all these zebra covers because yeah. they were willing to pay him. You yeah, know, you would always know. I mean, I remember as a
2: kid looking at the shelf, a zebra cover had always a very distinctive
1: look. Yeah.
3: So you knew that it was then. Black background and probably a skeleton yeah, being industrious. Some
1: form, yeah, some form of skeleton. That brings me to a question. I, I I haven't been able to like tear into it yet, but I've been flipping through it as much as I can get. And there are a few covers that really stood out to me as like a couple of my favorites, like, you know, the crab human sacrifice, obviously, as we were talking about earlier. And then there's the one on the back, uh, I think it's like the little people where it's like the little gnomes, the The Nazi the leprechauns. No- yeah, 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 yeah. Uh are there a few that like stood out to you as like a couple of your favorites? But there's not so much the covers that stood out as my favorites, but some of the
3: artists. Like mm-hmm. I really like. Um Lisa Falkenstern, she did tons of the zebras, but she also worked for um pocket i think for a really long time and her stuff she does really amazing kids and really great skeletons so i don't know if you remember the book Pin about the kids who um Their dad dies, and he's a doctor, and they imagine or believe that the anatomical dummy that he used to teach them the facts of life, and he would throw his voice and have it talk to them about uncomfortable subjects. There's a movie, Canadian movie version, based on the movie. Fucking love that. The movie's great. It's so fucked up. Yeah, and the book is amazing. And she did the cover for that, which is phenomenal. Does the
0: Does the book make it ambiguous as to what? Like, I think the movie, I can never tell if the movie means to be this, but there are parts of the movie where you're like, maybe they're right. And pin is like the movie's done in such a way where there's a couple of what you think, you know what pin is real. It's, it's not just
3: craziness. The book, it is 100%. You know, it's the brother throwing his voice. Sure. Sure. sure um, sure. but I mean, do they have the sex scene, the three way sex yes. scene that, yeah, it's so twisted. Oh God damn it. Um, and the author of that is Andrew Niederman who is who became VC Andrews ghostwriter and has written like 40 oh, something wow. VC Andrews books. He's actually pretty good. Um, but Jill Bauman, who did these great, she did dolls, a lot of dolls with, like, cracked faces and broken faces. But she also did a lot of really just wonderfully gory covers of, like, there's this great book, Midnight, that's a woman, like, a clock at midnight. And a woman's, like, impaled on the, the hands of the clock. Uh, Tom Hallman, who did some really striking, very graphic, uh, stylized stuff for books like James Herbert Shrine. Uh, and he, Fire. He does beautiful fire. Um I mean, Richard knew. I mean, there's so many people, you know, Mark and Stephanie Gerber, uh, who did. I don't know if anyone's ever read Hobgoblin, which is like no, the Dungeons. Yeah, yeah. But terrible they. Book, but the yeah. Was it Step In? A yeah, the Step Back. Yeah. Sorry, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah Hobgob- step In cover for uh, yeah. Hobgoblin is great. So, yeah. The so, their stuff is great. So, well, the book is weird because the book's really kind of tedious. And then the last 50 pages is just this giant stab down at yeah, a Halloween a party. Bit, yeah. And you're like, I wish the whole book was this crazy. When I was a kid and I got the book and I saw all those really cool
2: creatures in there, I thought there were going to be really cool creatures in the book. So going through 400 pages of this guy's angst. yeah, And then the bloodbath, but no cool creatures was really disappointing. You know,
3: it's funny. It's like, you you see covers like Blood Sisters. And as a kid, things are really literal, right? Is it if the John a, Russo book? Uh, no, it's, um, oh God, I can't remember the name. But but like you're so literal as a kid. You're like, there's a skeleton, graduate, it's a really beautiful William Thiessen cover. Skeleton in a capping gown at graduation, sniffing a flower. And you're like, oh, well, this book's gonna have skeletons going to college, you know? Yeah. Uh, and you read it, and it's a book about a class reunion with some Girls who are mean and a girl died, but it wasn't their fault. And then they think they see her, but really they're just overtired. Like, and a church burns, (laughs) but no one dies. And you're like, well, skeleton graduation. I think the only book that has actual skeletons doing things is the, uh, I don't know if
2: you've read The Skeletons by Al Sarantonio, which is. Oh, yeah, yeah, I I haven't read it, but I know what you're talking about stuff Where skeletons of all, of everyone. Brianna made it, so there's an Abraham Lincoln skeleton Oh, that's and great. they're all at war with one another so there's good skeletons and bad how skeletons how can you tell
3: the skeletons apart though with no hair I don't know if he's any... wearing a stovepipe no. hat and he has because his head's cold <laughs> yeah. there's a
2: fake beard too <laughs> yeah. uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about was um, you know, we're about the same age so when I was a kid a big frustration for me was I wanted to see all these R-rated movies and I would have to coerce an adult usually my father to take me to see them but at the bookstore there were no age restrictions and you know, right. if I had the money I could buy any book. No one at the counter was going to say, oh, I don't know about this one. No one even knew it was in these books. And no member of my family, unless they had read the book as well, would know it was in there. And these books were, some of them, were significantly more graphic than anything you would see on the screen, especially in terms of the sexual content. Yeah. So it really was uh, a bonanza for young people to be able to be exposed to some really crazy material. and have no restrictions upon them.
3: Well, that was the thing is that as long as they're reading, you know, that's okay. As long as they're reading, which was great. Um, but you know, for me, I wasn't allowed to see R rated movies period, full stop until I was like 16 or 15, you know, and I, and I could rent, you know what I mean? That, that gets loose, but like as a kid, no R rated movies. And, um, so what I did was at Boy Scout meetings, actually Cub Scout meetings, I guess, afterwards we go to the Oasis gas station and we had snack money and we could get a snack. And I convinced the Scoutmaster that my parents said it was okay for me to read buy things to read. Mm-hmm. So I would buy Fangoria. And then, like, look at all these movies I'd never get to see, like uh, The Thing and uh, Friday the 13th Part 2. And then I'd imagine and pretend I'd seen them. So I'd describe the plots mm-hmm. to everyone it's in Carpool. And, like, everyone thought I'd seen Friday the 13th Part 2. I saw Friday the 13th Part 2 in, like, 2008. 10.
2: You know, like, like, your imagined version is probably far superior to the thing that you
3: actually saw. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Eventually. Oh, yeah. I was sort of lit down a little bit. Um, So, yeah, but books were another thing. But the books creeped me out. Like, as a kid, the covers were too much for me. Um, I, w- and my sisters were all terrified of the Amityville Horror book. They wouldn't have it on the same floor of the house with them. And so, like, my thing was um, men's adventure fiction. And science fiction, especially post-apocalyptic stuff. Because I was convinced we were all gonna die in a nuclear war. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be reassured that I knew how to wield a machine gun and lead a gang of motorcycle commandos in the apocalypse. You need to find some Vietnam vets first. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then you can all ride in the back of the truck shooting things up. Exactly.
0: I appreciate that. That's I think it's a logical concern. You know, yeah. You want to be good at
3: yeah, it makes yeah. sense. But also like these books were just as inappropriate. I mean, did you ever sure, read sure, the, sure. the Park is Mine? No. It got made into a TV movie with Tommy Lee Jones but like the book it's basically this Vietnam veteran is just sick of New York and so he decides to take over Central Park and he booby traps it and he's got all these weapons and this whole book you're cheering for this dude who's like killing cops he kills like 80 cops you know and it's like and it's just like and then they have to hire these Viet Cong like commandos out of like who work in like Africa now and bring them there to hunt them and Central Park becomes Vietnam and like he's taking amphetamines the whole time because if he goes to sleep the cops will raid and i'm like i read it like eight times i'm like this is a really this quality literature (laughs) it sounds like the greatest fucking book ever it's kind of amazing i was gonna
0: say what's so what's the inappropriate part i gotta
3: add this to my amazon list. well and the tv movie is just not very good even though tangerine dream did the soundtrack and it's one of their better soundtracks but it's just it's very lightweight uh but yeah the book's great what's it called the park is mine the park is mine (laughs) i'm adding it right now
0: so at some point it feels to me that the the great mass of these covers, of these paperbacks that have these crazy things, they just kind of went away. And I don't know if in your research like that there's like a point at which that kind of changes, but it just seemed, and again, this is anecdotal. it's just what I grew up with. I remember seeing these things everywhere. And to be fair, I'm a little bit younger, and I was a bit of a dick kid, so I was like, look, that doesn't say Stephen King. Or Peter Straub, or Dean Koontz. So therefore, fuck you,
3: garbage. Oh, I don't want. Yeah,
0: you know. Yeah. yeah. Even though I d- occasionally would just be like, okay, I'll give this one a try, and some of them I really liked. I was just a picky little kid, and I, you know, whatever. And then I would just reread the fucking Lord of the Rings or some bullshit like that. So I missed out on a lot of this. But I remember seeing them, maybe not always in the nice store. Sometimes it'd be like the book trader, and they'd be there. But at some point, you just didn't see them anymore. And and what happened? Like, how did that? I mean, we sort—you of, sort of talked a little bit about the the publishing world that changed, but at what point did that impact this specific sort of niche area?
3: Well, well sort of three things happened, and okay. um, basically. One thing is publishing sort of collapsed in the early 90s. Like all the big houses were merging and they they were publishing too many books. You know, there was just too much product coming sure. out. And and so a lot of stuff had changed about the way publishing were like midlist no longer existed. It was a blockbuster or it died. And so that was one thing that happened. The other thing that happened is that uh, Silence of the Lambs came out the book in 88 and the movie in 91 and serial killers were suddenly like the next big event like the first big event in publishing since maybe Anne Rice's vampires sure like that was the next big trend and basically horror was getting so devalued that everyone was just changing to thrillers and writers were like begging their editors please market my book as a thriller which would have previously been horror so that was the other thing and 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 the third thing was there was this real arms race to have to get reader attention and what Publishers felt was that the gorier and more over the top the book was and the cover was the the more it would sell, and so covers were just getting grosser and grosser, out of control stuff. Yeah, yeah, and like, um, and at the same time, splatterpunk came out in the mid '80s, and right. that, you know, splatterpunk was just it was a reaction to the sort of the moral majority, which made sense, but it was a really juvenile reaction, and those books were just so. Reading them now, you're like jesus i mean they're they're they re- a lot of them really are books about women being raped and murdered yeah i haven't um, reread many of those books but
2: i read a lot of them when they came out and i was
3: wondering if any of them actually hold up do you think that any of them actually hold yeah up i the mean there's there's some people and there are people who sort of transcend that genre like poppy z bright was considered splatterpunk to some extent but i think her or his i guess now stuff really like holds up um even though it's gory and over the top and hypersexual. Um, Jack Ketchum, he was there before Splatterpunk and he lived on. And Joe Lansdale, I think, is someone who came out of Splatterpunk, but who cared more about, like, you know, am I going to stab her in the vagina or the butthole? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, like. I never think of him in the, in the same terms as, say, Skip Inspector. Right. Or, you know. Skip Inspector, you know, they're, by all accounts, are super nice guys, but like their stuff was really rough. I mean, I read The Scream, which is their rock and roll novel, mm-hmm. which I really appreciate because it goes there. You know, but it's also the first female character you're introduced to on the second page of the book is a woman at a show, and someone's looking up her dress at her pussy. And like within five pages, like uh, the other female character who's been a POV character is like raped and murdered. And the big evil monster from another dimension is called Mother or no Mama mm-hmm. and she's a giant hermaphrodite who has a carnivorous vagina. Like hmm, whatever I never mean, could this mean. Yeah, it's just <laughs> it, it's just reading it now in sort of the heat of the moral majority, because their thing was, fuck you, moral majority. You say we're we're like rotten and heavy metals, rotten and horrors, rotten. We'll show you what yeah, rotten okay. is, like in your face. Which I get. But, like, outside the heat of that cultural moment, yeah, you're just the last thing like,
2: effect as a piece of literature, as yeah, a book that stands to be reprinted and read by subsequent generations of audiences,
3: yeah, it's a little like- lacking. And the problem is, they're good stylists, I mean, you know, they're way better than a lot of other people. But, like, you know, David Show's Kill Riff, I mean, fun book, but like, man, it is so gratuitous. Like, at one point, the hero, the hero of the book. They decide to, like, the hero's, like, actually evil, too. And he's met this really nice—he's a Vietnam veteran. He's killing the members of the heavy metal band that gave a concert where his daughter was trampled to death in a riot. And you're like, okay, I can get behind that. And But then he meets this, like, hitchhiker who's escaping from her abusive boyfriend. And he, like, helps her out. And she's like, oh, can I stay in your cabin? That's like, his staging ground for his killing race. He's like, oh, yeah, sure. And, like, this dude is, like— your main character, you're on page like 200 of a 350 page book. And then he's like, yeah, women. And he basically beats her into a coma with a log in graphic detail and then rapes her for a while. Now and he's a cult film programmer. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so you're just like, why? Like, you know, they wanted to make the point that everyone's bad and everyone is dark and life sucks, but it's just like, it feels, I mean, <sighs>
0: There's a certain extent, and I think this is probably true in music as well, where something feels like you're really pushing, we're pushing the edge, yeah. we're pushing so far, and then in retrospect
3: it's like, what did that even, a,
0: Yeah, we pushed to what and in what direction and for what reason, it's, Yeah, there's no real like. Substance to
3: it, yeah, and also your the the books were. I feel like the book, especially splatterpunk, was written so in the heat of the moment. I'm not saying they were like poorly written books, but they were they were really reacting to something they were angry about. as all this like pushback against sort of pop culture, and um, from the from the right and and there's a real heat to the books and a real anger, but also not a lot of reflection. There's not a like hmm. A lot of people get tortured horribly on the pages of this book, and they're mostly women. I may want to throw in a few dudes here to balance it out. Right. 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 you know and so uh that stuff was and but that stuff with the that the serial killer stuff hit i mean Splatterpunk's 86 serial sure. killer stuff sounds Slams is 88 sure and, and so it all comes and you really wound up with books that weren't splatter punk they didn't have an agenda they really were just books about women being raped and murdered graphically and the covers were and it and people really i think readers got really turned off you know um I mean, I talked to some Barnes and Noble people, and they were like, yeah, you know, like, were, we were getting so many books in, and they were so much gore and stuff that, like, some we wouldn't even shelf, you know, we, we wow. couldn't do it, like, you know, it was too much. Um, so, and that's sort of where they went, you know, and the magazine started to shut down, the publishing imprint shut down, and, like, 94 is when I think it all ended, but really 96 is when Zebra closed its horror line, and that's, that's the tomb, that's the gravestone.
2: Well, speaking of zebra, I wanted to talk about uh, you know one, one of our favorite yeah. writers or it's someone who is very featured very prominently in the book, which is William W. Johnstone, who like when I was a kid, my father read his books, and they were the only ones I wasn't allowed to read because the the level of the content was was so so much more out there than other things that they, those were the <laughs> books I was forbidden to read, which meant of course, whenever he wasn't home, I would just read those books and eventually, I was old enough to read them and, and then had a little correspondence with him for a while because he you know he always wrote about vietnam veteran characters and my father was a vet so uh i wrote to him and i think that and i wrote to a lot of these different writers at the time when i was a kid because i don't think that they really received fan messages from people because they were writing books about you know killer crabs or something so i think it was sort of novel that people at that time were writing to them And Johnson was very gracious. He sent me some little gifts. And I have a picture of him where he's kind of squatting down on the ground, hugging one of his big dogs. I think he had a husky or something. And he's kind of a burly guy with a salt and pepper beard. And and he would write to both my father and me for a little while. And he was a really nice guy. But you could probably talk about what his.
3: Well, I just wanted to say, you know, it's kind of interesting when you say that. Like, how'd you get his address? I wrote, All these people that
2: I wrote to, I always wrote in care of the publisher, and this was including some folks in England, like I wrote to Sean Hudson when I was a kid who wrote the Slugs books and all yeah. that. And I swear I was the only person from the United States at that time. None of them had been published in the states. Whoever wrote to him, so he was just taken aback by the fact that there was some kid in the U.S. who was reading his weird books. And he sent me glossy eight by ten picture of him looking like Garth Marenghi. You know, he's he's got like a leather <laughs> leather jacket on and, and aviator shades, and he's you know he's making a face. But you know, he sent me a free book, and he um That's you know awesome. he wrote me a series of really nice letters. But it was all through the publishers.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, William Johnson, I mean, William Johnson's books are real satanic panic books. I mean, they really do buy into that thing that there are 150 satanic cults in America using heavy metal music to make kids kill themselves and turn against their parents. Well, that's just logic. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so his books were always about a small town, usually in the South. And um, there was something wrong. Dark forces were at play. And by the time the book started, usually the dark forces had taken over the town. So all the teenagers are having sex and using birth control. And um, there's a lot of zombies. Oh, Uh, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, a lot of heavy metal music. Um, Generally, at this point... Cats and dogs have picked a side. Cats usually have formed an army to defend Satan. Dogs (laughs) sometimes fight for Satan, but often fight for humans. Um, and, And so usually an outsider will enter into this conflict and there's a lot of hymn singing a real obsession with anal sex like the dude is obsessed with anal sex <laughs> um which makes sense though because i mean in satanic literature all the way back to like you know the 15th century anality like kissing satan's butthole was always a thing so sure. you know and they, they were very graphic they were really crazy i mean like crazy over like like there'd be a next door neighbor who is an old senile dude who would just yell like <laughs> in my favorite one, Toy every time the guy comes home to the house that he's renting, you know, while he's in town dealing with his aunt's estate, the guy will go, hey, asshole. And, and then you find out that the old man um, is actually a secret OSS agent who's like retired to this community and he's got all these like badass pistol skills. Like it's just... Yeah, there's always
2: a very pornographic des- description of all of the weapons. Oh, and yeah. How they operate. You know, you can tell that he has clear, very good knowledge of these things and he's
3: yeah. making sure that you know that he knows exactly and there's two things about Johnston one I didn't think of until you were just saying that about writing him letters Is but one is that he wrote mostly westerns hundreds of westerns yeah is it the mountain man the mountain man yeah yeah. and there's another isn't there a survivalist survivalist books he wrote a lot of those and he also wrote the big the rig warriors which is like an 18 wheeler guy who fights for justice like six book series but westerns where he shines and actually my editor was at a meeting with penguin random house which handles Johnston's books now and he mentioned Johnston when he was talking about sales on paperback from Hell. And they're like, oh yeah, he still sells great for us. They're like every drugstore in Montana carries William Johnston paperback still. And they're like, he moves. There's like a like hundred thousand of them. So he just sells one of each book a year, yeah. and then he sold a hundred thousand books. Exactly. But the other thing I wanted to say is that you were talking about your dad being a vet, and I realized a lot of in all these harm books, a lot from the 70s and 80s. Almost every main character is a Vietnam vet, if they're a dude, or a reporter, but usually a Vietnam vet. And when you were saying that, I realized that probably a lot of kids were reading, the, a lot of kids our age were reading these books. And my dad wasn't a veteran, but I can imagine that your dad really wasn't talking to you a lot about Vietnam and what he did, but you knew it was a big thing in his life. And then you were reading these books where like... People like your dad are heroes. You know, they fight evil. They fight werewolves. They're really good with guns. They know all the stuff that, like, makes dads cool. And I actually have to think, you know, that's kind of an amazing thing. Like, I think a lot of kids probably connected with their dads who were vets, over books like this, yeah,
2: because they seem like such badasses in the books. And if you're not hearing about it in real life, then what you're getting is instead the vet is shooting a werewolf in the fucking head. You know, yeah. so that's
3: pretty cool. And and a lot of them were like sort of a lot of the vets in the books are very retiring. They're reluctant to bring their skills out. But when they have to, they exactly. Have them. Yeah. But it's like it's like you know the way someone won't talk about having been in combat or something. You know, they don't want to talk about it. It's not a funny story to them. You know, yeah. they don't want to impress their kids. Yeah, with usually that. the people who like
2: to talk a lot about that are people who are bullshitting you and want yeah. to seem like a more noble or they were like a quartermaster at Fort Bragg or something yeah yeah, yeah. well I also th- I just wanted to say that I think that the, the the demographic for those books at the time they were coming out was men of that age you know that so too, they would yeah. have been men who had started and we're seeing a reflection of themselves you know it's like me coming into that yeah. town.
0: you know do you think I mean in that sense is there a <clears throat> significant difference between the Books that were coming
3: out at certain times and then the horror films that were coming out. No, amazingly they were really linked closely. Really? I mean, yeah. I mean, like when slashers started getting big in movies, like right. not not as fast in the early eighties, but like in a few years later in the eighties, more and more and more slashers. When horror got more kid oriented in the early eighties, with like Friday the thirteenth about campers and everything, instead of The Exorcist about a mom, you know, it's like suddenly the the paperbacks, you know, you start having Christopher Pike and R.L. Stein, and they started getting really kid-oriented and sort of oriented towards the youth market. Um, And there was a back and forth. Like, what I think really launched, and I can always be wrong, but what I think really launched the killer kid trend in the mid-'70s was the Omen novelizations. Sure. Because those sold millions of copies, millions. And there were five, only three movies, five books. And funnily enough, the first book, novel number four, which is the first one to go off-movie, Page one is a character from the, pre, from the Omen 3 having a rectal childbirth as so she gives birth to the grandson of Satan.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> again, I mean, with,
3: again with the buttholes.
0: People are into butts, I guess. Yeah. So that's the thing.
1: I'm having Satan's baby for my butthole. Hello. I have a bit of a question, too. Um, oh, yeah. I know that it's primarily horror. But have you delved into any of those, like, men's pulp adventure, like The Executioner or, like, Deathlands or any of that kind of stuff?
3: I haven't, and it's really just because there's so many people who've done that. Like, Mm -hmm. there's some great... They don't get big distribution, but there's some really great books about sort of the history of men's adventure stuff. Um, A lot are out of print. A lot are from, like, McFarland, so they're academic books. But, yeah, that territory's been really well plowed.
1: So I I avoided it, because I don't want to be wrong. I uh, the Like, my local library had like used books that you can pay like a dime for and there's like a whole big back row of them and i remember when i was like grossly inappropriate age to be reading these books i went in and i remember seeing the covers there's like you know a bunch of guys with guns and all kinds of crazy shit so i just grabbed a bunch of them and i just kind of like fell into that world of reading and then i went back and bought a lot of the original ones and I loved him, but I didn't know, like, I didn't go that further into him aside from...
3: I'm actually curious. Was there, like, a series that you, like, really did it for you? Well, I
1: loved uh, The Executioner, because it was... Really? When I, when I got I've into, never read one of those, yeah. It's... You, you Are you familiar with the Punisher character? Oh, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. It's, it's almost completely identical. Like, I think it came out... Of, it had to have come out before the Punisher character was created. And it's, like, the same deal. Like, Vietnam Vet ended up... His uh, family was killed by, like, street crime, and then he came back and went on this like one man vigilante war and then the government brought him in and it was like whole whole deal but there's like hundreds of those books yeah and i i just always kind of gravitated towards that
0: i don't i've never i've never gotten the appeal of that ever
1: I, i'm I more just, into yeah. giant
0: crabs like yeah, that's, yeah. well, that's more that's more of my alibi
1: As like a you know 13 year old kid that didn't have any friends of course i'm going <laughs> to be really excited about that and now as an adult I want the giant crab and the Human Sacrifice so I think this goes I think, this goes, in, well, I think yeah. this
0: goes Into the argument We were having About Punisher I've never gotten The appeal of Punisher well,
1: What Punisher really? for me oh, He's such a pure Character to me Right And when I I can't do it I, I was never like Big into comics And when I would go With my sister To go get comics I remember pulling up It was like a Punisher War journal Where it was like Him in Vietnam And like me being The big fan of history That I was as a child I saw that cover And I was like What the fuck is this Like this looks awesome so I bought it, and then I kind of like steadily fell into getting all of those comics, and then kind of like moving into that world of. A bunch I forget of other the name things. of a
0: series of the series, but there's a there's a thing where uh, what it, one of the many Satan stand-ins in the Marvel universe is like trying to corrupt these three dark characters, and it's Wolverine, Ghost Rider, and the Punisher. And I remember reading this going one of these things just doesn't belong like it just never you know Wolverine I'm like okay sure he doesn't have magical powers but you know he's got claw it's good you <laughs> know but, but Punisher's just a dude with a lot of guns. He
3: runs out of bullets. One, he's yeah. in
0: hell. Like he's literally in hell. No one ever with his Uzi. And I just was reading it being like, I don't understand why I should care about this. No one ever claims him to be a superhero,
3: though. That's the thing. But I do a have, lot of
0: that time he was at working as a superhero.
3: Yeah, but like I do guns. have to say also the thing that makes the Punisher great is I haven't read that comic. I know which one you're talking about. The thing that makes that character so great is I guarantee you he is not phased to be in hell. He's just no, like, oh, Okay, all. who
1: do I shoot?
0: No, I mean you're you're right and I wanna feel that, but I could never get into
1: it. I just I it it's it. the same as like why I always love those like gritty seventies New York movies. Yeah. Cause it's just there's like a See, certain I, element of like sleaze and grit to it that I love.
0: For some reason, I like that more if if the Punisher I don't know. We we can have a whole episode where yeah. we debate the Punisher. Apparently, I kind of have a whole episode where I debate everyone about so we'll have a special mother episode, we'll have a special communism episode, a special, we'll have a special taking a special break episode. Punisher
3: episode. It'll be I, crank- you're really putting up with a lot today.
0: I know. I am so put upon. And the good-natured one of this duo, Josh, isn't here. He's the yeah. one who's always being nice, and I'm the one who's always being cranky.
2: And that said... Oh, my God. Do you see this guy right here? need to...
0: <laughs> hey, so we are on a bit of a time crunch, uh, audience. But uh, I want to thank Grady for being here, not Joseph. But I'll thank Grady for being here. I'll thank Joseph. Yeah,
1: thank
3: Joseph. Is I'd like really to great thank too. Evan for being here. And, <laughs> no, thank you guys for having me. This uh, is fun. I wish I wish so, I'd been on time so we had.
0: More. Obviously, you're plugging the book, Paperbacks from Hell. Yes. Are there other things you'd like to plug, or are there ways people can find you on the interwebs?
3: The only thing I would suggest for someone who wants to be around me more, I can't imagine why, is just GradyHendricks.com. Sure. It's all my books, all my events, everywhere I'm going to appear so you can make sure to be out of town on that day. Do you, have, that? do you have an Instagram or a Twitter? Or I do, like but that? you can find it all on the stupid website. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. it's all there. GradyHendrix.com. Cool.
0: Joseph, is there anything you want to plug while you're being recorded?
2: Uh, early December, Tony Retman, who just wrote a book on Straight yes. Edge, will be in Philadelphia, so I'll be doing a live interview with him at Common Beat Music in West Philadelphia on Baltimore Avenue, and uh, he should also, we hope, I'll be doing uh interview here with the Cinepunks.
0: Yeah, we never really do that where we're like, hey guys, we're interviewing this person coming up. We should do that more. Oh, so, so, right, so that's good. No, no, interview. no. I appreciate that. Like in December, look forward to Tony Repman, yeah. who you one, should have heard on here before, One right? hopes, one hopes. Yes. We hope was, we yes, don't was, know was, if it's going to happen. Before. Um, but we have we have a few interesting interviews coming up in October. Joe from uh, is it Joe? Joe Turner from in, Joe Turner yeah. uh, from Atomic <laughs> City Comics. From Atomic City Comics. Uh hopefully we're about to find out in a few minutes, uh, either Adam, uh, Caesar, or uh, Scott Cole. So. Maybe Joey Breeding. Maybe Joey Breeding. We'll we can do
1: it here again because he lives here.
0: And and uh, we uh, have a, a rescheduled one with Sam Deegan. And I, I, that's the thing I want to plug for everybody. You can also plug other people's stuff. That Lost Girls book, the uh, films of Jean Rolien that she edited. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so good. If you haven't checked it out yet, check it out.
1: It's really good.
0: Yep. Evan, you want to plug anything?
1: Uh, I work at Union Transfer four times a week. Bring me food. I won't get you in. That's all I got. (laughs) I like chili. I like pizza. I appreciate that. That's all I want. Maybe coffee.
0: All right. Well, that wraps us up right now. Let's go eat. Yeah, we're going to go eat food, so fuck you, listener. Rangoon. Later.
3: Later.